Hey guys, I hope you're loving the Making Bank episodes. Please make sure you guys like and share these episodes as well as comment below for the guests. They love to come back and interact with you. And I really appreciate you watching and listening to Making Bank. So thank you. You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Excited for today's guest, Trevor Blake, Ross Hamilton, Casey Chohan, Andre Swanston, Jonathan Jay, Roland Frazier, Antonio Garrido. So obviously, you know, you learn from that buying, you know, business acquisition is better than starting from scratch. Kind of why is that? You know, why do you think that? And, you know, uh, how has that helped you? Yeah. So, so, so we always know, don't we, that when you start a business, you, you might spend the first couple of years putting money in, probably not taking money out. You know, you work seven days a week. You, that's all you think about is the is the business. You lose touch with your family and friends because it's business, business, business. And you can be doing that for two or three years at the start. And the majority of businesses don't succeed past the first five years. So there's a, a high risk of failure. Now, mm, my way right. of doing things is to look for a business that's been running for at least five years that makes solid, reliable profits every single month works even when the owner has been removed so it doesn't depend upon one person we buy that business without risking any of our own cash and then once we've got that business that business will continue to make solid reliable profits month after month but now those profits are yours so if you've got two choices years of risk or you do it with certainty I think most people would prefer the certain way of being in business rather than the high risk way of being in business. And so when you look to acquire a business, I mean, what risks, because obviously there's risks when you're buying it as just as there's risks when you're starting it. Um, What are, what are the different risks that you've come across? Yeah, sure. So, so, so doing anything new always has risks because you don't know what you're doing. So I always say to people, get educated. You know, if you're, if you're going to buy a business, learn everything you can about buying a business because there's always going to be a right way and a wrong way of doing it. So the wrong way of doing it is where you go to the bank and say, I want to buy a business. How much money will you lend me? The bank says, we'll lend you this amount of money, but we need uh, security from your uh, your house, your property. So you you borrow the money, but you've given you've given your house to the bank effectively right. to secure that that money. And then you give all the money to the owner of the business. The owner of the business hands you the keys, and now it's your problem. And, and that's the wrong way of doing it. Highly stressful, high risk. You could lose your house. I mean, that's how bad it could. That's how bad it could be. Alternatively, we do it a different way. We find a business that's solid and profitable, that has a motivated owner. So um, an owner who's motivated to sell. Someone who, for personal reasons, no longer wants to own this business. And the biggest personal reason is actually age. It's retirement. People get into their early 60s. Everyone's suffered in some way because of the pandemic. We're now in a recession. So if you're in your early 60s and you were planning to retire at 65... Do you really want the last few years of your retirement to be in a recession? Probably not. 
So people are accelerating those retirement plans, which means right. there's lots more businesses coming onto the market. And then you combine age with uh, ill health, stress. Yeah, we, everyone who isn't in business thinks that entrepreneurs walk around loving their business all day long. Now, maybe at the start, but after 20 years, many business owners absolutely hate their business. And if someone comes along and says, you know what, I'll buy it from you, they'll practically hand it to you. Now, you might sometimes get the business for free, not often to be fair, but you might. The chances are you'll pay a fair amount of money for the business. So now we need to finance the acquisition. And we can finance it in different ways, depending on when the business has assets or whether the business has cash at bank. But one of the most reliable ways of financing an acquisition is to convince the owner that the very best deal is the deal that you are offering them, that you're sitting in front of them offering them a deal. And that deal involves paying for the business over a period of time. So where do you find the money to pay for the business over a period of time? Well, you find it from the business that you're buying. So the business self-finances its acquisition. Oh. So if you can buy a business where the acquisition self-finances, the next question is, well, how many businesses can you buy? And the answer is, well, as many as you can find that are solid and profitable with motivated sellers that make sense to you that you can buy without investing your own money. And I have clients building multi-million dollar empires using this technique. What does kind of that process look like? I mean, how do we acquire it with no money down? Yeah. Everybody's like, hey, I want to do that. Tell yeah, us more. I mean, the, the, obviously, there's the, there's a lot more to it than we can talk about here, but the, the, sure. it's pretty simple. I mean, you once you identify, so I, I use that that list of seven things that I talked about. To me, there that means there's different categories. So there's competitors, there's media, teams, resources, products, services, uh, MRR, monthly recurring or annual recurring companies, uh, suppliers, distributors, and IP. So I go around that, I call it the acquisition wheel. I go around those seven categories and then say that solve those seven problems and then say, who are, who, who are the um, primary companies that fit that description? And each of those seven, by the way, has another five to 10 things that are subcategories, right? So you end up with just pick the category and the subcategory you want and then say, okay, I'm looking for uh, leads. I need media so I can get more leads. So I'm going to acquire media. What kind of media can I acquire? There's a whole bunch of different kinds. Let's say that I decide I want to acquire podcasts because podcasts have my ideal customer and Josh has built up the exact audience that I want for me to sell my widgets or my services to. So then I would reach out to you and say, hey, Josh, how's it going with the podcast? You know? How much money is that making for you? How is it working? Are you happy with it, et cetera? And then you're either going to go, it's been the best thing ever. I'm making billions of dollars. And I'll be like, okay, I, I'm probably not going to work out something with you. <laughs> or you may be like, man, I love doing the podcast, but I'm having a really hard time justifying it because it doesn't really make any money. I mean, I I, I, ha I don't know how to get sponsors or I've got a sponsor or two and you know, I make $1,000 a month from it, but it's not like it's, the best thing I've ever done. And it's kind of become a little bit of a labor of love and a distraction and maybe even a pain in the butt. So, you know, I, I, sometimes I, I, I love it. Sometimes I hate it. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to keep doing it. Well, you're perfect for me then because I can say, well, how about this? How about if I was to acquire the podcast from you 
and then I'll own it. You can continue to do it. And then I've got several options and I can pay you to do what you're not getting paid to do now. As a matter of fact, I could probably pay you two and a half times what you're getting right now every month. How would that be? And then you can continue doing it, which keeps the continuity of host and right. it keeps continuity of brand. And, um, but we end up making more money together because I do know how to monetize it because I'm going to sell them stuff that I've got because you've got my ideal audience. Or I might say, why don't we do this and I'll acquire it and then I'll rev share with you because I think I can pay you 10% of every sale and each sale that I make is $10,000. So all we have to do is make two and a half sales a month and you've made two and a half times what you're making right now. But maybe we'll do 10 sales and you'll make 10 times, right? Right. Or I could, you know, or I could say, why don't I buy it? And then I'll start hosting it. You, we can co-host for the first three months and then you can ride off in the sunset and I'll have paid you a thousand dollars or $5,000 or whatever. Right. Sure. So now that's, you know, that's the easy kind of simple deal. A more complicated right. deal might be, well, you've got a company that's doing $5 million a year and making a million dollars profit. You've got a 20% profit margin on that. And, um, we have a conversation and you say, I'm interested in selling. And, um, we talk about it and I say, okay, what do you want? And you say, I want $5 million for it. And then I'm going to basically say, well, what, what are the strategies that I could do to acquire that from you and get you what you want without me having to come out of pocket? So the very first thing I would do is I'd set up my own company that I call it a, uh, an SPV or a special purpose vehicle. The only reason we're setting that up is to acquire the assets of your company. And okay. then the way that we would do it is I'd say, you know, so would you consider some seller financing? Would you consider financing that over a period of time? And you might say yes. You might say no. If you say no, I'm probably a little nervous because you don't have enough confidence in my ability and the business's ability to run after you sell it to mm -hmm. be willing to have some skin in the game that's going to be dependent on it continuing to produce. So that's a good filter for me. Um, sure. I'll typically start out asking for 80% seller financing and then see what they'll do. Um, as long as they're in the, you know, I'd prefer it to be at least 40%. Um, I don't think I've gone below 20, but, okay. um, but in that 20 to 80 range, I'm feeling pretty good. Well, if we can do that, let's say that we, we settle somewhere in the middle and you're willing to do 50%. Well, now I only have to come up with a half million. I've already got a half million mm -hmm. taken care of. There's no money out of my pocket. The next thing I'm going to say is, would you, now I know that we think things are going to go well here. Would you be willing to stand behind that? I'm not going to haggle with you on the price, but the law of price and terms says, if I give you your price, then it's my terms. And so if we, if we do a deal here, then uh, would you be willing to do an earnout so that as long as the business continues to perform like it is right now, two years from now, I'll pay you the other half million. You might say yes. You might say no. You might say, well, I don't know. I mean, I got to get something now. How about I'd be willing to do 25% that way. Be like, all right, awesome. Well, now I've got 50% seller financing. I got 25% as an earnout. I'm no money out of pocket and I only have a 25% gap, 250,000. Uh, excuse me. I only have a 20. Uh, yeah. On my, on my total purchase price of 5 million. Right. Right. I will be within, is it 1.25 million? So I got 1.25 yeah. million. I've still got to come up with 25%, but okay. I've got 3.75 with no money out of pocket. Right. And so then I just continue going through strategies. I've got about 200, 219 of them at last count, right? And so I'll just go and look for where is the opportunity in the business? Where Where is their money? Is there money in merchant reserves? Is there money in, in suppliers that I could get to loan me money? Could I change the payment terms on whatever it is that you're selling 
so that I effectively capture two or three months of free time by extending the window from 30 days to 90 days on my suppliers that I have to pay? Could I consign inventory to you and say, hey, look, why don't why don't I take the business, but you continue to own the inventory and then I'll pay you for the inventory at cost as each unit sells. So effectively, you're you're still you're going to keep owning that. It'll be consigned to the business. We'll sell it as it goes. Maybe I'll go to your team and I'll say, hey, guys, I know Josh has always owned 100 percent. There was never really an opportunity for you to own any of this before. Um, I'd like for one of you guys to step into Josh's shoes. You've been here running this thing for five years and you know everything there is to know about it. You got you got the cred and the chops to do it. Um, how about if you invest, I give you the ability to buy 25% of the company at my cost. Well, if I can do that, then I get you your 25%. I get the buy-in of my people who are going to be running the company. Now I've got them locked in because they got their money in it. Where are they going to get the money? Home equity loan, friends, family, stocks, bonds, investments, all kinds of loan, right? Lots of places they could do that. And then um, I've got 75% of the company and I haven't paid anything for it. Right. Or I might look at your accounts receivable and go and factor those. Or I might look at your credit lines that you've got in that company and do that. Or maybe there's some assets I don't want and we can carve a million two fifty of assets out or some combination of all of those things. Right. Like I said, a couple hundred ways to do it. And so then when we agree on that, it's it's really just saying I've got a whole bunch of strategies. I only need to figure out what do I need to come up with. And then I'm going to build a stack of different strategies that don't come out of my pocket or create personal liability for me. And I'm going to use those to give you everything that you wanted for the company. And some of that's going to be cash. So a lot of people confuse what I do and say, oh, you're no money down. You can't do deals like that. It's like, it's hard to do no money down deals, but it's not hard to do no money out of pocket deals. And there's a big uh, difference between those two. Say somebody was getting ready to you know, plan on selling their business. They're a first generation entrepreneur what should they start to think of? Cause I know, like I said, I have, uh, friends that like, Oh, I got, I'm selling my company. I got to move to Puerto Rico two years ahead of time, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. What should they start to look at to do now? So they're ready to sell in a year for now. Great question. So we're doing this right now with a client. He's got a, a business, a really good manufacturing company. And not only does he have the business, but he also owns the real estate that the business is in. So it's going to be North of $10 million combined sale and he started this business from scratch so we projecting to save him in the region of two to two and a half million dollars in taxes all by changing the ownership structure of everything so the company isn't owned by him it would be owned by the trust ahead of the sale so when the sale happens the trust will receive those funds and similar to the way a 1031 exchange works in real estate you can do the same thing within the trust, but the beauty is you don't have any of the limitations that a 1031 has, where they have a time frame, a like-for-like asset, it's got to be still in real estate, usually a bigger asset. So all of those restrictions go away with the trust, and you can reinvest that money however you wish in whatever asset type, in whatever time frame you like, compared to the traditional 1031. And that saves you all the taxes unless you make a distribution. If you distribute wow. those funds to a beneficiary, they are taxable. I'm not trying to tell you this is perfect for everyone. There's no magic right. pill here. You just need to know the pros and cons of it, right? So if you make a distribution, that's taxable. There's no two ways about that. But you don't have to make a distribution. And that goes back to the difference between simple trusts and complex trusts. 
Mm, interesting. Obviously, you had three successful exits. Um, what is your, I guess, um, framework or what is kind of that um, process that you've been able to put in place to be able to exit three different times, you know, for roughly $100 million each or more? Yeah, well, and they're milestone exits. So, so because one of my companies is the research and development company. And so when that is successful, then, you know, another windfall lands, if you like. So, so they're, they're, they're sort of structured, uh, um, you know, the the branched out de uh, deals in a way so much up front, so much on approval, so much on so a percentage of sales when the product gets into the market. Okay. Um, those, those are nice deals. You know, they're really good deals. They're easy deals to do because of risk mitigation. It's, it's a feeling, I think, more than anything. It's the, so intuition is in, in this new world of fast paced, get big fast. There's, you know, when you see a problem, it's, it's too late to say, let's call a meeting and talk about it. You, you, you're done. And we're seeing huge companies that were household names that were stars in the books, good to great and built to last. Well, they're not. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going out of business faster than we can even pay attention to. You know, right. all, the, all the circuit cities and, and uh, you know, um, border books and all of those. Oh, yeah. Household names are gone now because they can't adapt quickly enough. And, and that's because their structure is all wrong, in my humble opinion. And so in the new structure, in this new world, you have to rely really on your intuition more than you ever had to before. So, so I teach that. I teach how, especially for, for male entrepreneurs, you know, female entrepreneurs now have an advantage that they've deserved to have for, for you know, centuries, but finally they're in the right place. And we're seeing it in every aspect of life where female leadership is now, you know, rightfully in, in the place it needs to be. And, um, and a lot of that is down to their intuition and their, their connection to their intuition. Now we all are half female, half male, but you know, as a man, I've relied more on my male side and you know, my wife relies more on her female side. <laughs> so I've been teaching myself more of the female side for, for a couple of decades now. So, so I've developed a strong connection to my intuition so that I can make instantaneous decisions that I know feel right, even though the world might be saying paint it blue and I say, no, I'm going with red. And, and that's because it, red feels right to me. So that, that to me is the biggest change uh, of, of this new world. We don't have time to you know, see a problem and hire someone to fix it or, or um, see an opportunity and, and you know, go and talk to investors about it. You have to react really quickly now. And that, for that, you need strong intuition. Yeah, no, I think, that's, you know, I think that's definitely true. I mean, with the way everything is going, we got to be able to, to make those decisions and to believe that you know, that's, it's going to work out <laughs> with the decision that we made. <laughs> Yeah, and it takes practice. You know, you do have to work at it. It's a real thing. So, so I, you know, I, I, I teach tools and techniques at trevorgblake.com to how to do that, how to, how to get in touch with your intuition. Because for a lot of people, it's been a long time since you learned to trust yourself. You know, been you've been taught different ways of, of making decisions. You know, typically companies will make decisions by consensus. That's crazy when you think about it, but that's the way it's been. Now it's different. Now, now we're having people saying, I don't care what anybody thinks, we're doing it this way. And, and that's the new world that we live in. So I, you know, if anyone's interested, you can go to trevorgblake.com and, and there's loads of freebies. There's a, there's a practical magic of the five hour workday because I never work more than five hours either. Um, that's a good one. And then there's the seven day mentality control diet challenge. It's a mouthful, but it's fun. So it's seven, <laughs> it's for free. So seven techniques that you can do. So you can start to realize, okay, I need to think in a different way. I need to play with energy in a different way. And you can see the effects of that by using these, these exercises. That'll help you immediately start to trust your intuition more. When you guys sold the company, what was I guess what was that process like, and what were some of the challenges, and then what were some of the things that if people are thinking about selling their company or been approached, what they kind of need to look for? So I think it's 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 different by different industries, right? Sure. And so 
if you are running a, you know, you have a, a plumbing business, right? And you have, you know, 20 plumbers working for you and, and you have your trucks out and you have some commercial contracts and you do residential and so forth. I think it's much more of a traditional, you know, if you were going to get an investment or bought by a private equity company or, or even get a, a small business loan, I think you're talking about much more uh, traditional business metrics, right? Profit, loss, expenses, uh, repeat customers, contracts. And with a tech startup, I think it's much different. Mm. No one, I don't know if no one, but a lot of people don't like to admit this because they want to act as if tech companies run in the same way as, as normal businesses. But in many times with venture back companies, what you're thinking about is not only revenue growth or margins or stuff like that, you're thinking the quality of revenue and the impact that that will have on future valuations, right? And so going back to the, 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 the thought that I, that I had in terms of almost giving away the first year for free or very, very right. little to, to lock up multi-year contracts, well, there's a, a few things that that accomplished is I understood that we needed the multi-year contracts to be better positioned to fend off the big boys once they woke up to the opportunity. But I also knew that the value of multi-year contracts was exponentially more in terms of the, in terms of, um, the multiple you could get on revenue as opposed to one-off uh, contracts. And so in terms of preparing to raise another round, I knew that, you know, 50 cents of a multi-year contract was worth two or $3 of a one-time one one -time expense. And so those are some of the things um, relative to your business. I, I think that there's different ways that you have to think about uh, growing it and, and valuation. What was the hardest transition you, I guess, after you sold the business then? The hardest part of the transition in selling the company was I had to help with the integration. Mm. They're a Fortune 100 company, um, which is essentially like the government. They've been around since 1890. So there were culture clashes, you know, how we did things, how they did things. I had never been in a corporate setting. For anyone who is in a corporate setting, wow, I never, never really understood the challenges that uh, someone with a creative mind would have uh, within, within that box. But it's, yeah, it was really challenging transitioning out and solving some of those issues. But I also learned a ton. That's a huge thing thing because I kind of removed the word problem and, and changed it with the word project. So I don't have a problem. I have a project. And it just, that mental shift in how I viewed problems uh, really helped because don't get me wrong. I mean, Josh, there was, there was times when I was growing the company, it wasn't all straight up. I mean, we almost right. lost everything a few times, uh, but we kept pivoting and just figuring things out. So, you know, there's going to be challenges. Those challenges, you got to have fun with them. Um, because it's really what makes you who you are. Now I look back on it and I love that I made it through that and uh, and had the opportunity to put myself in those situations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, you know, like you said, it's it's the, that whole process, that journey um, that you go through, you know, with that. Um, obviously at the time when you're almost losing the business or whatever it might be and, you know, it's it's not fun, but it's, you know, it, it's, you know, helping define and like you said make those right pivots to you know where you need to go with the business and then you know during those times you might network of people you know that's it's when you own a business it's a bit lonely you can't really talk to everyone about it you know i made the mistake of keeping a lot of stuff from my spouse you know because i didn't want to stress stress her out and then that's just a lot of stuff that you're you're holding on to so that's why that that network of people is really important and you know, some of the people that were my competitors and were my friends is what would help me stay alive. And we've been helping each other for years and years. So, you know, your network, super important. Daily habits, 
everything, your state of mind. You just have to be a mentally tough person uh, to to do anything in business, you know. But to me, after working in a corporate setting for just a little while, I think it's the riskiest thing you can do is just rely on someone else. Like even if you're not going to go, you know, crazy like I did. Like you got to have some sort of a side hustle, some sort of a passion, something on the side that can generate you some extra income in some way, shape or form. It's not if something's going to happen, it's just when. So I think it's really risky to to count on business models, ways of living that worked really well maybe in the 50s and 60s, right? <laughs> the things are just moving so fast nowadays. You got to have a little something on the side. And for anyone who's still listening, I mean, the fact that you're educating yourself, you're listening to this, I mean, you are you are in the 1% of people that are that are actively doing stuff. So that's that's why I love jumping on these calls because the people that listen to them are doing it. They're they're doing the tough stuff. Yeah, for sure. And, and so if you had that same opportunity, would you sell you know, to not sell your company, would you go back and not sell it or would you still sell the company and, and move forward? No, I sold it the exact right time. Okay. I sold it the I sold it the top top of the market for a very good price. So, and it's, it's allowed me now to the entrepreneurial spirit. It's a spirit, right? It's kind of a possessive spirit as well. People always talk about it as, as a positive thing, but for someone who's been an entrepreneur since I, I can remember, it can take, it can take over your, sure. you know, everything. So it was, it's been really nice to, uh, to step out of that for a little while and, you know, just make some different plays in life. I have a huge charity that I'm running right now, uh, nonprofits and all that type of stuff. And it's just so nice to be able to use my my talents to help uh, help people in all sorts of different ways. I have a big charity right now for affordable housing um, because I, I truly believe you have the haves and the have nots. The haves have real estate and people that just missed the jump, man, they didn't get any of that equity now interest rates are really high. Um, they had to be really creative to get in. And that's for someone who has means to do things. But then you have right. people that are just down on their luck outside of other aspects. And that's where I want to come in and uh, help in really creative ways. Not handouts, but just giving a hand to help help pull people up into uh, home ownership. Because on every webinar or presentation you hear in real estate, people are like, real estate's the number one way to become a millionaire. That's what got right. me into it. But it's also the number one way out of poverty in America. Right? So there's, it's on both sides. It's a wealth creator. And to take that away from so many people, which is kind of happening with Wall Street coming into real estate, I'm looking forward to combating that at, at some level uh, locally and, and nationally. What's something you want to share with the audience and everything before we wrap up? If I could have everybody that's listening, if, if they just did two things. One is I don't know any successful leader that, that doesn't have a mindset of abundance versus scarcity and, and gratitude and all of that kind of stuff. So, so think a lot about every day, think about what you're grateful for. You are in a tremendously, and listen, I know leadership some days can be such a drag. Your work-life balance is completely screwed up. And you hardly see your kids. And when you're at home, when you're at work, you're wishing you were at home. When you're at home, you're thinking about work. And 
all of that terrible stuff, but you're in a tremendously fortunate position. So try and build your kind of gratitude bank, right? Be grateful. And because you can't have a positive life if it's filled with negative thoughts, most human beings have about 70,000 thoughts a day and about 75% of them are negative, right? So stop talking to yourself poorly, right? So, so really think about gratitude, help people. Those things do come back to you. Your job, your number one question is to ask people, how can I help? Build a business that's collaborative, not just cooperative, not just communicative, but collaborative, collaborative businesses, collaborative organizations. And it starts from the top and it's cascaded from the top always. Significantly outperform those that don't. And, and it works from how can I help you share resources, break down silos, have all of your people collaborate. And it starts with you. Ask people how you can help and don't accept an answer of, no boss, everything's good, I'm fine. Don't accept it, right? Push, 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 push for an answer. They'll give you an answer and then start following up on your commitments. That's what I would say. Awesome. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.